<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, I'm Megan and welcome to another exciting episode of Nobody Read Short Stories. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com. Tonight we have a, a wonderful zany story and everything you need to know about it is in the title. This is Gorilla Bot versus Killer Mermaids from Neptune by Christopher Vallon. Gorilla Bots versus Killer Mermaids from Neptune by Christopher J. Vallon. Naturally, the mermaids thought it would be perfectly fine for them to come to Earth and use its vast oceans as their new hunting grounds. The only intelligent creatures they could detect dolphins and whales appeared to be pathetically peaceful. And besides, they'd been hunted nearly to extinction by the filthy land mammal predators in their primitive watercraft anyway. Their own oceans were nearly empty from millennia of overfishing, and it was time to move on. Earth, with over three quarters of its surface covered in water, seemed like the perfect place. So they packed up their bioships and left Neptune for greener pastures so to speak. September 24th, 1955, Washington, D.C., the White House. Vice President Dick Nixon paced the floor of the Oval Office, leaning forward into his trademark slouch. Uh, of all the times for Ike to have a heart attack and leave him in charge, alien spaceships on their way to Earth, alien spaceships. Yeah, he was hoping something would come up so he could prove his worthiness to stay on the ticket for next year's election and dare even think it's a, a run for president after that. But space aliens, why did it have to be space aliens? It wasn't just new to him, it was new to everyone, period. And where the hell was the Secretary of Defense? It's getting ridiculous. He stabbed the call button on the speakerphone with his finger. Yeah, Mrs. Whitman, uh, any word on Wilson? The secretary's voice came back immediately. He's just arrived, sir. Oh, well, I'll send him in. Uh, what the hell's the holdup? Right away, Mr. Vice President. Yeah. Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson entered the Oval Office a little too confidently to Nixon's eye. He was still wearing his golfing clothes. <clears throat> Say, what's the emergency, Dick? Nixon's eyes bulged. Is that how you address the President of the United States of America? Acting President. Now, Nixon was furious. I I'm in charge now, Wilson. Until Ike is out of the woods, you will treat me with the respect I deserve. Yes, Mr. Uh, President. Now, now that's better. Now, before we go into that cabinet room and talk to the Joint Chiefs and those uh, egghead scientists, I need to make sure I know what I'm talking about. So uh, give me a rundown on our options. Options? Uh, for defeating the space aliens. Wilson was flabbergasted. S space aliens? Good God, man, did you not get the message I sent? I was trying to finish up the last couple of holes, sir. I figured I could be briefed once I got here. Christ, what if they'd been on the brink of a nuclear exchange with the Soviets? Nixon could feel his hands shaking as he tried not to explode into a fit of rage. He knew he'd have to rein in his anger or he'd 
never end up a permanent occupant in this office. Yeah, they're on their way, Charlie. And we're not quite sure what we're up against yet. Perhaps we should call the president and... No, 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 no. But my understanding is that he's actually doing quite well, despite the... God damn it, I said no. We don't need him having another heart attack with the shock of the news. And I don't need the American people and the leaders of the party thinking Nixon can't handle the first crisis to come his way. That'd be a, a political suicide. But certainly we can't take any chances with something like this. If you're not sure... I'm sure. I, I'm not going to have I kick the bucket and uh, have everyone blame Nixon. What did Dulles say? Well, what do you think he said? He wants to, to nuke the things as soon as they're close enough. Well, he may have a point. Nixon could feel his face turning red. He, he took a couple of deep breaths. You just go join the others. You tell them I'll, I'll be there momentarily. Wilson nodded. Wilson nodded, but he obviously still was somewhat in shock. Yes, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, President. The Secretary of Defense walked out of the Oval Office in a daze. This was it. Nixon's big moment. The event that would define him as a man competent enough to take the big chair when his turn came. And he was surrounded by idiots. Queen Celestia of Neptune sat upon her shell-encrusted throne aboard the command ship and watched as they passed the rings of Saturn. Although many might describe her as beautiful, her sharp features matched her temperament. She leaned forward on her trident. How long until we reach Earth? I assume we are still on schedule. Her majordomo swam from his console and bowed his head, his catfish-like whiskers flowing in the water that filled the bridge. There will be a minor delay, your highness. Why? The first navigator made a slight miscalculation. With a flick of her tail, Celestia swam forward at such a rapid pace that none of the bridge crew had time to react. In the blink of an eye, her trident perforated the navigator's back with such force that its tips protruded from his chest. Blood and guts filled the water around the crew member. Her majordomo cleared his throat. Uh, that was the second navigator, your highness. The queen pulled her weapon from the crew member's back, and the navigator floated lifelessly in the bridge's cocoon of water. No matter. I'm sure whoever makes calculations in the future will be more careful now. The head scientist from the Naval Observatory was finishing up his explanation of how some kid with a telescope in Omaha had noticed several glowing objects headed toward Earth and they had been tracking them ever since. But Nixon was losing his patience. Yeah, yeah, can we get down to brass tacks? We don't have a lot of time here. Well, sir, the good news is we're nearly sure there are not meteors or other large celestial objects. If that had been the case, well... Yeah, yeah. It, it's not, so move on. Uh, what the hell are they? We're not quite sure, but as they get closer, they seem to resemble some sort of marine life. Marine life? Nixon looked to the other scientist, and they all nodded their head in agreement. Specifically, giant squid. Yeah, I thought you said they were ships. That was what we originally believed, Mr. Vice President. And they still may be, but they definitely have the shape and appearance of gigantic cephalopods. Uh, Nixon wasn't sure if that would be better or worse. 
He looked around at his advisors. Uh, what do you boys think? Secretary of State Dulles was the first to speak up. I say we nuke him, Dick. Yeah, yeah, of course you do, John, but how would we do it? Uh, yeah, this program isn't even uh, ready to close to being something like that, is it? Every man at the table shook his head. Yeah, I spoke to Khrushchev earlier. He seemed to think this is some kind of uh, American propaganda stunt. He says if there's uh, any sign of nuclear bombs, they'll consider uh, an act of war and retaliate. Wilson sat up. Propaganda? What's wrong with those people? Certainly they can see those things as well as we can. Probably better. Dulles scoffed. Besides, they're the ones who just set off an atomic bomb just yesterday. Yeah, and that's likely why they think we're up to some uh, funny business. Doesn't matter. Atomic weapons are off the table. Uh, at least for now. He turned uh, to the scientists again. Yeah, what do, you, what do you fellas have for me? Most of the scientists gave each other worried looks. Then someone spoke up from the back corner of the room. Mr. President. Was that a German accent? Everyone else moved aside to reveal a small, bald man sitting in the shadows, cleaning his glasses with a handkerchief. The man quietly continued. I believe I have a possible solution that might interest you. He pushed his round spectacles back up onto the bridge of his nose. However, no one in this room except you has the proper clearance. Dulles stood up from his chair. Now see here. Nixon put up his hand for him to be quiet. Uh, what agency are you from? Uh, you may call me Dr. Schmidt, and my agency does not yet have a name. We do advanced research and development for the United States government under the direct supervision of President Eisenhower. Anything further, I will have to explain to you in private. Every person at the table turned to Nixon to see his response. There was a long pause. Give us the room. The scientists and advisors exited hesitantly. Yeah, Nixon walked over to where the small scientist sat. He crossed his arms. Tell me about this solution. I suspect you will have to see it with your own eyes to believe it. We should go to the laboratory immediately. Now, what lab? It's close by, beneath Theodore Roosevelt Island. In the Potomac? Yeah. There's a secret entrance in the basement of the Watergate Inn. Oh, what the hell is that? A popular restaurant featuring Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine. It's really quite good. Yeah, I I've never heard of any Watergate. Passing Mars. The space mermaids had nearly reached their destination and trained their instruments on the nearby blue and green sphere. As part of their observations, the Neptunians began monitoring the crude broadcasts coming from the primitive planet below. Most of the visual transmissions were of primates firing small projectile weapons at one another, and there was one uniformed bruiser who repeatedly threatened to hit his mate with so much force that she would break free of the planet's gravity and eventually come to rest on Earth's natural satellite. However, there was no indication that any of these primates possessed such exemplary strength, nor that their capabilities were advanced enough to calculate the proper trajectory, even if they did. Following a brief discussion with her advisors, 
Queen Celestia decided to move forward with their plan to invade. Uh, some sort of misguided joke? Nixon stared at the sight before him, but his brain refused to accept what he was seeing. It was a large black and gray gorilla wearing a light lab coat and old-fashioned goggles. They descended in an elevator several hundred feet below the quaint restaurant into a crowded laboratory. Even the Secret Service agents had to remain behind near the elevator. Nixon saw parts of various experiments and technological wonders he had never even imagined existed. But of all the strange things he saw, that gorilla took the cake. When they had approached it from behind, he thought it was simply a very large man working with some test tubes, and then it turned around. The animal was attempting to shake his hand and spoke with a vaguely British-sounding accent. It's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Vice President. Nixon stared at Schmidt. Uh, how are you doing that? Doing what, sir? Uh, making the monkey talk. Schmidt grimaced and looked at the ape apologetically. I'm sorry, I have forgotten. The gorilla interrupted him and addressed Nixon directly. Monkey, I assure you, sir, that we are much more closely related to one another than either of us are to monkeys. Nixon clasped his hands behind his back and circled the gorilla, looking him over carefully. Uh, no joke. Schmidt smiled. Nine. Yeah, well, uh, what's its name then? The gorilla held out its hand once again. Dr. Meshuga, at your service. Meshuga. Nixon but, uh, raised an eyebrow at Schmidt. Yeah, is that German? My colleague was acquired by the United States government, along with myself and several other scientists who were working on special projects for mein uh, the German leaders at the end of the war. Yeah, yeah, I gathered that, but uh, that, that name sounds unusual. Schmidt suddenly appeared embarrassed for some reason. It's somewhat of a long story. You see, prior to becoming super intelligent, he was in a circus and his uh, owners, as it were. Bonkers. The ape interrupted matter-of-factly. My name translates to Dr. Bonkers. Uh, I see. Uh, Nixon would have grinned if he had been the type of person who grinned. He'd learned long ago that his smile frightened small children meanderly. He made great efforts to suppress it. He turned back to Schmidt. So, uh, uh, you're the trainer. Schmidt looked horrified. Ach, nein, Mr. Vice President. Dr. Meshuggah made an odd sound that Nixon quickly realized was laughter. <laughs> Schmidt here is my assistant, Mr. Vice President. I apologize for not attending the meeting myself, but as you can imagine, it's quite difficult for me to be out in public, especially at a place such as the White House. Schmidt looked away and continued to seem uncomfortable, but Dr. Meshuga was taking everything in stride. Now then, I understand you require my assistance. Oh, well, uh, Dr. Schmidt here seems to think so, although... I'm not sure what a, a super intelligent monkey... A gorilla. Or ape. Ape would do also. Yeah, a gorilla would do to assist in uh, defending the Earth against invaders from space. Well, there is my latest project. 
Meshuggah motioned for Nixon to follow him. They continued further on into the cavernous lab to what appeared to be an observation deck. A metallic shroud prevented Nixon from seeing whatever it was that was supposed to be observed, however. Dr. Schmidt approached a nearby control panel and pulled down a small lever, and the shroud began to peel back, each section sliding into the next, each section sliding into the one next to it. Nixon got the feeling that whatever they were about to observe was in an even larger cavern, and there were no lights on that he could see. Dr. Meshuggah pulled a large switch down on another control panel, and large floodlights began powering on all over the deeper cavern below. Nixon saw what appeared to be metallic feet, then legs, then a torso. As the lights continued to illuminate the area higher and higher, he finally saw the head, which looked a great deal like Dr. Meshuggah himself, only constructed of gleaming steel. Mr. Vice President, may I present the culmination of nearly a decade's work, which incidentally, President Eisenhower has not seen himself. Gorillabat 2000. Nixon's mouth hung open. Yeah, it's a, it's a giant metal monkey. Well, not technically. Well, if you're gonna uh, build a giant robot, you couldn't at least make it look like a man. Dr. Meshuggah made a grimace that Nixon assumed was his version of a smile. Although Homo sapiens is the more intelligent primate species, present company accepted, of course. Gorilla Berengii Berengii, colloquially known as the mountain gorilla, is a much more robust physical specimen. Furthermore, the ability to go from a standing position to using its longer arms to stabilize itself makes it much less likely the robot will be knocked down in battle. Nixon's eyes narrowed. Battle, eh? Many of the mermaids were surprised when they met no resistance as they descended toward Earth's largest ocean, but their queen knew better. Not only were the earthling mammals quite primitive, they were dominated by the males of their species. From the intelligence that had been gathered, she knew they were probably far too preoccupied with their genitalia, creating bodily noises, and running around after spherical objects in their undergarments to mount any sort of defense against the invasion. After the long trip on Air Force One to Honolulu Airport and a much shorter stint on a helicopter out of a nearby aircraft carrier, Nixon was feeling jet-lagged. The alien ships had landed in the middle of the Pacific and immediately submerged. He had no idea what their plans were, but if he waited to find out, then it would probably be too late. At first, he wondered how they would be able to transport the giant robot, but he soon learned that President Eisenhower had already worked everything out. It was carried out to the aircraft carrier on an old Messerschmitt ME-323 Gigant that had been captured during the war. Being Supreme Allied Commander probably helped Ike figure a lot of this stuff out. It was strange for even the world's biggest cargo plane to transport the monstrous 100-foot-tall robot, but the aircraft had been retrofitted to handle the task. When Dr. Meshuggah was trying to convince Nixon to utilize his invention, they climbed into the cockpit inside its head so the ape could show him how it worked. It seemed simple enough, 
Nixon even took it out for a short spin to test it out. The time was running out. So with no viable options, he had ordered it to be transferred out to the last known location of the alien ships, not far off the coast of Hawaii. There was no way he was going to allow another Pearl Harbor on his watch. Now it was a matter of searching and waiting. Queen Celestia could not figure out why the mammals were looking for them. Surely they must realize how much more powerful our ships are. Why would they be spoiling for battle? They just wanted a fresh supply of food and a place to live. Was that too much to ask for? She was tired of wondering what would happen next. Send out a few scout ships to take care of the primitive watercraft of the land mammals. That should be sufficient. Three smaller squid ships left the rest of the mermaid force and began moving toward the surface. Selassia's majordomo approached the throne, his head bowed as usual. Your Majesty, perhaps we should send a larger force if we've underestimated these creatures. The queen slammed the base of her trident down onto his tail fin, pinning it to the floor of the bridge. Are you questioning my judgment? The majordomo was turning a pale green color and appeared unable to speak. He simply shook his head slowly. I did not think so. The small mermaid ships surfaced just off the coast of the Hawaiian Islands, not far from the aircraft carrier. After being alerted by the ship's captain, Nixon stood on the deck and watched with a pair of binoculars. The U.S. Navy began throwing everything it had against the three bio ships, torpedoes, bombs, and heavy artillery from the ships that began converging on them bounced off or exploded harmlessly against the hulls of the alien vessels. Ah, uh, it's just as you suspected. Conventional weapons are a bust. Nixon turned to Meshuggah. You're up, Doctor. Dr. Meshuggah, now dressed in a gray flight suit, donned what appeared to be a pilot's helmet. Ready to go, Mr. Vice President. The giant steel robot towered over the men and the fighter planes on the deck of the aircraft carrier. Schmidt, who was dressed in an identical outfit, checked to make sure Meshuggah's gear was all set, then placed a helmet on his own head. Each of them entered a small door located at what would have been the Achilles tendon of each leg of the robot. Once they entered the legs, the automatic lifts brought them to their stations within the gargantuan machine. Meshuggah's position was in the abdomen of the robot, where he would maintain the machinery in what was essentially the engine room. He pulled some large levers to start up the reactor, then strapped himself into the mobile seat that moved around the cramped area. A high-pitched whine indicated that the power source was turned on. Schmidt was transported all the way to the cockpit in the gorilla-like head of the giant, where he strapped himself into a similar seat and began powering up the controls by flipping switches and pushing buttons. The lights from instrument panels and small video screens reflected off the visor on his helmet. The sailors on deck backed away from the robot as it started to vibrate slightly and strange noises began to emanate from the mechanisms that caused the thing to move. The aircraft carrier moved closer to the strange ships, which were now shelling the beach with explosive conch shells that sent the tourists fleeing. Mermaid soldiers flowed forth from the ships by the dozen and attacked unfortunate swimmers and those in small boats near the shore. The Gorillabot 2000 reached the first alien ship while still hip deep in the ocean. 
as Meshuga calibrated the power supply and made sure everything was functioning properly in the bowels of the robot, Schmidt expertly worked the controls up in the cockpit. The giant steel ape reached out and grabbed the tail end of the Neptunian craft and lifted it into the air as if it were a child's toy. He waded toward the second ship and wielded the first like a club, bringing it down upon the other vessel and smashing them both to pieces in the process. Biological matter and dead mermaids littered the surface of the water. The third bioship launched its conch bombs at the robot, but they caused little more than small dents and burn marks on its surface. This time, the robot picked up the ship with both hands and tore the thing in half. Strange liquids and mermaids alike spilled from its insides and dropped into the sea. The gorilla bot reached into the water and grabbed handfuls of the mermaid crew members who had managed to survive, squishing them in its massive grip. Queen Celassia was enraged as she watched her scout ships being easily destroyed by the mechanical mammal on her view screen. Impossible! Why did we not have knowledge that the Earthlings had such a weapon at their disposal? After a brief moment of hesitation, the Majordomo spoke up. Uh, shall we send more ships, your majesty? The queen considered it momentarily. Then she raised an eyebrow as another idea occurred to her. No, send for the ultimate weapon. Bubbles escaped from the majordomo's open mouth as his eyes opened wide. Your majesty, perhaps. She slammed her trident down again as she hissed back at her underling. Do it now. We have kept it hidden for long enough. I will not be made a fool by these pathetic surface dwellers. Yes, your highness. The majordomo nervously nodded at a member of the bridge crew who appeared as if he was going to be sick as he punched some commands into his console. Uh, Nixon felt queasy as he watched the metal monkey turn the invading aliens into jelly in the palms of its hands. But he supposed that's what they deserve for attacking the U.S. of A. Yeah, they showed the Germans and the Japs not to mess with them, and uh, now it was time for the rest of the solar system to learn the lesson as well. The men aboard the aircraft carrier were cheering, and he could tell through his binoculars that the civilians on shore were celebrating as well. But he knew from experience that this was far too easy and that the celebration was premature. Seconds later, he was proven correct. The surface of the ocean bubbled furiously. A bridge officer called down to the captain who was standing on the deck with the vice president. What is it, Ensign? Sir, on the radio, there's something coming, something big. Yeah, coming from where? From beneath us. Waves buffeted the remaining ships of the small fleet as a squid, larger than any creature ever seen on Earth, surfaced next to the aircraft carrier. A kraken of unimaginable size, with eyes as large as Volkswagen beetles and tentacles as long as subway trains. A monster that could make a snack out of a blue whale. A giant tentacle swung at a nearby battleship and batted it away, sending it onto its side and forcing the crew overboard. Nixon stood frozen on the deck, his mouth slack. What in the name of... Queen Zelassia's command ship surfaced next to the Leviathan, looking like a miniature version of the tentacles creature. An opening appeared in the top of the ship and a small railed balcony rose from inside. Zelassia herself stood upright on her fish-like tail with her major domo, 
next to her, his own tail bandaged up from where she had seen fit to teach him a lesson earlier. The robot slogged forward toward the new threat, the water level nearly reaching its chest. It stood at its full height and faced the squid and its commander. The kraken slowly moved a tentacle toward Celestia, and she slithered onto it. It gently lifted her to the height of Gorillabot's head. I wish to discuss the terms of surrender. The top of the robot's skull opened up, revealing Dr. Schmidt sitting in the cockpit. I'm sorry, but I'm not the one in charge here. You'll need to surrender to the vice president. Celestia let out a hearty laugh. <laughs> Me? Surrender? She threw her triton straight at Schmidt, and the weapon not only pierced his torso, but penned him to the seat. Blood streamed from the three wounds created by the sharp tines, and Schmidt's head fell forward as he blacked out. The tentacle moved forward, and Celestia pulled her three-pronged staff from his body. Then she lowered back down to the balcony on her ship by her pet. Schmidt was gravely injured, perhaps even mortally wounded, and obviously wouldn't be able to continue. The captain seemed terrified. So much for that. Are you going to surrender, sir? Nixon stepped forward. No, he's not the only one who can control that thing. The officers all shot concerned looks at one another. None of them had even seen the inside of the robot. The captain spoke up. Sir. Well, damn it, I'll do it myself. Get me up there. A helicopter hovered next to the open cockpit as rescue specialists jumped aboard and lifted the body of Dr. Schmidt to safety. The medics in the copter worked frantically to save the scientist as he opened his eyes one last time and stared at Nixon, unable to speak. The vice president grabbed his hand. You did well, doctor. Then Schmidt died. A ladder was lowered into the head of Gorillabot and the vice president climbed down into the control area. Before sitting down, he stared down at Celestia and shouted at her. One last chance. This is your only warning. Queen Celestia held her trident high in defiance. Bow before the power of Neptune. Nixon sat down, strapped himself in. He put on Schmidt's helmet and heard Meshuggah's voice over the speaker. Do you remember the controls, sir? He didn't remember much, but he had to play the part of the confident leader. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Good, because here it comes. A tentacle erupted from beneath the surface and slammed into the robot's side. Nixon fumbled with the controls as he felt the machine wobble. Meshuggah sounded concerned. Everything okay up there? Yeah, worry about yourself, you damned ape. Finally getting the hang of the controls, Nixon managed to raise Gorillabot's right arm and then pummel the squid right between the eyes. He heard Meshuggah make a strange sound that sounded like a bark. <coughs> nice shot, sir. The squid shot a long spiked tendril out at the mechanical ape and it pierced its armor. An electrical pulse worked its way up the thin tendril, shocking the robot and causing it to freeze in place. Luckily, the control areas were insulated and neither Nixon nor Meshuggah were affected. Nixon pressed buttons and pulled levers to no avail. God damn it, we're dead in the water. 
Meshuggah unstrapped himself and opened a service hatch leading to the outside of the robot. He grabbed a hefty, all-purpose tool and swung out the hatch, grabbing a series of handholds bolted onto the outside of the machine. When he got close enough to the tendril, he pressed a button on the tool and a blowtorch unfolded and extended from within it. The gorilla used the tool to cut through the tendril, and when he had made it halfway through, its own weight caused it to tear loose from the spike and plummet to the ocean below. Gorillabot sprang back to life and started executing all of the movements that Nixon had been attempting to input when it was down. Meshuga barely managed to hold on to the handholds as the machine swung left and right. He calculated his chances of making it through the service hatch at a particular moment and launched himself through the small opening. Out of breath, he slammed it shut just as one of the squid's tentacles slammed into the spot where he had been seconds earlier. The entire robot lost its footing and stumbled. Sugar managed to strap himself back in with great difficulty. The giant squid lurched forward and grabbed the robot's arms with two of its tentacles wrapping around them too quickly for Nixon to back it away. The tentacles began to squeeze the arms together and push the robot off balance. The mechanisms within the robotic simian began to groan under the strain as Nixon forced the levers as far as they would go. He felt sweat pouring down his forehead as the gigantic machine started to lean forward toward the gaping, big-like maw of the creature. Nixon wasn't sure that the thing would be able to bite the head off the robot, but that appeared to be its goal, and he didn't intend to find out. Nobody pushes Dick Nixon around! Nixon pulled back on the right lever with all of his might, and the gorilla's robot arms pulled apart with tremendous force, tearing the tentacles from the enormous creature's body. The monster let out a pained roar as long tentacles dangled from each side of the robot, and Nixon worked the controls to lift its arms above its head. On the upper balcony of the command ship, Queen Celestia barely had time to register what was about to happen. Her near-permanent sneer momentarily changed to an odd expression that somehow combined confusion, hatred, and perhaps for the first time in her life, fear. The gorilla robot's arms were a blur as they came down full speed at the command ship, causing the severed tentacles to slam down and flatten the queen and her minions, then tear the ship's biomatter hull asunder. The bioship immediately began to sink, the few survivors on board swimming away from the wreckage in panic. Victory was so close that Nixon could taste it, but there was still a dangerous, powerful monster with which to contend. Nixon pushed a lever forward, launching the right arm of the robot straight at the injured squid. It grabbed one of the remaining tentacles and yanked the monster right out of the water. He pulled back on the left lever, and the robot grabbed the same tentacle with its other arms as well. Nixon rotated the wheel faster and faster, causing the robot to swing the massive sea creature up and around. The torso of the robot began to turn on its pelvic section as if it were a carnival ride. Tell me when! He shouted into the radio. Calculating! Replied Dr. Meshuggah down in the robot's stomach area. His fingers were a blur as they worked the beads on his abacus. Ready? Now! Nixon released his fingers on the lever grips, 
on each side and the robot let go of the giant squid. The monstrous, the monstrous cephalopod flew through the air, casting a vast shadow across the nearby island as it arced toward a volcano and dropped in. For a moment, everything was silent. Then molten lava gushed forth from the mouth of the volcano as the creature splashed down and an unholy screeching sound emanated from within the mountain. Meanwhile, Nixon had some trouble slowing down the speeding rope. Meanwhile, Nixon had some trouble slowing down the spinning robot. And when he did, it was off balance and nearly fell over. He pulled on the emergency brake and the robot's arm slammed down forcing it into a crouching position and preventing it from toppling over into the ocean. Well, damned if that monkey wasn't right about that. I heard that, Mr. Vice President. Back at the White House, Nixon couldn't wait to hold his press conference. When everyone found out he had saved the world, he'd be a shoe-in for VP again. They might even choose him overnight for the nomination itself. Oh, what the hell had the old man done lately anyway? Oh, yeah, Hitler. Defeating him was a big deal. That was a decade ago. Old news. He had run off the alien invaders. The ships that were left had fled back to space once their queen was dead and their greatest weapon had been defeated. Dr. Meshuggah was already back at his secret lab, beginning repairs on his heavily damaged invention. With Dr. Schmidt gone, he had a new assistant, Dr. Johann, who mysteriously looked, spoke, and acted identically to Dr. Schmidt. Nixon decided not to ask. The telephone rang. Odd. Calls never went straight through to the Oval Office. He knitted his eyebrows as he picked up the receiver. Yes? Dick, this is the president. Oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> hello there, Mr. President. Uh, uh, how are you feeling? Not bad, considering, but they have me down to a pack a day while I recover, and that's pretty rough. Ah, I, I can imagine. Dick, the reason I'm calling is about the little incident you just took care of. Fine job on that, by the way. Fine job indeed. Ah, felt so good to be finally acknowledged. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you, sir. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to have to keep it quiet for now. What? What? Wait, did you just say that out loud? You see, the world just isn't ready for the idea of space aliens coming and invading Earth. And they sure as heck aren't ready for talking gorillas building giant robots. Uh, yeah, but, uh, 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 uh. I know you'd like to get credit, but that's the kind of thing that happens when you have the big job. Sometimes the most important accomplishments go unnoticed and unannounced. Uh, what about all the witnesses? We have a story already in the works. Something about weather balloons. Excellent bowed his head. I see. Listen, I talked to the RNC chair and you're on the ticket for next year. No question. No. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And after that, in 60, I'm sure your name will move to the top. Huh? Nixon perked up. Ha! Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. You just have to remember one thing, Dick. There are just some things... You have to keep secret when you're president of the United States. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, sir. I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind. The end.
All right. That was so great. Thank you guys so much. You guys killed it. Oh, that was so wonderful. What fun. What fun. So before we say goodbye to all of our wonderful readers, I just want to tell everyone a little bit about um, how wonderful everyone is. So tonight we did have Georgia Harrell. Georgia is familiar to television audiences from sitcom guest appearances, feature films, and over 100 commercials. In Los Angeles, she has directed plays in Hollywood at the Met Theater, Sacred Fools, the Arc Theater, and the Working Stage, and in North Hollywood at the Two Roads Theater. Three of her plays have been produced, Twins, as part of the award-winning Cannes Festival of One Act Plays at the Two Roads Theater, the critically acclaimed Eros Thanatos class at the Whitmore Lindy Theater, and Kitty Kitty at the Empty Space Theater. She has been a member of the Studio City Writers Group since 2001. And Georgia was our wonderful Queen Celestia and um, Dr. Bonkers. So thank you so much, Georgia. We appreciate you. And then as our Dick Nixon, we had John Zelazny. John, this is not John's first time on Nobody Reads. You, he has been an actor and also we featured his wonderful writing on some of our previous episodes. So John spent his early career in Hollywood, including a decade in creative support of acclaimed German director, Uli Adele. His short stories have been published in Opossum, the Binnacle, Econoclash Review, Switchblade, and the upcoming The Rabbit Hole. His story, Constant at the Three Deuces, won the 57th Short Fiction Prize from Jerry Jazz Musician and is now a nominee for a Pushcart Prize. John was previously featured on Nobody Read Short Stories. So Thanks thank you. Great thank to have you, great to be back. <laughs> thank you, John. And thank you so much, Georgia. We appreciate you. Oh my gosh, that was so good. It was so good. I I love Chris's story so much. Okay, I'm going to set the clock um, for three minutes because Jeremy is the special guest tonight. And you know, guys know how we like to just chat and chat and chat. chat, chat, chat. So we have to set, so we have to set the timer. Oh my gosh. So Jeremy, please tell me what it was like reading all of those different parts. You had so many parts of this story. Well, I just wish I could have done it more justice. Like this piece like deserves like so many different characters playing it. Like I actually saw this as a radio play. So it would be fantastic to have eight people reading these roles and just like be in it with the sound effects and stuff. So oh yeah, that's yeah. what I want for this piece is me not reading it. Oh, well, I thought you did a good job considering you had so many roles. Well, thank you. Thank you so much on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, it's just so bonkers. And I mean, like one of the characters names is bonkers. Like I, like I salute Christopher for just like taking it there and just the title, right? The title title is like bonkers. Yeah, I, I love these types of stories where you get exactly, like, you know exactly what you're going to get with the title. You know, it's Gorilla Bot versus Killer Mermaids from Neptune 
I know exactly what kind of story I'm going to be getting myself into and I'm, and I'm all there, you know, there's, there's a place for sort of these enigmatic short story titles where you're not sure what, what you're getting yourself into, but I, I always love it when I can just read the title and I'm there. Yeah. He should sell this to sci-fi like <laughs> Sharknado what? Yeah. And then he can he can hire John to be Dick Nixon oh on the show, gosh. and uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be great. But but yeah, I I agree with you. I think elevating this to like a full fledged radio play with some sound effects and some no, we need sound effects. We need all the, the sound effects. We need the is it like the thirties forties the like that weird noise they make when ufos are landing and stuff we need all of that <laughs> well what would the sound effect be for like the tentacle of the kraken coming down on the metal gorilla bot i don't know but there is a sound designer watching the show right now and is like pick me pick me i'll do it oh my gosh this would be a sound designer's dream like Absolutely. i feel like they would just they would just go nuts yeah, they Absolutely. could have they could have so much fun. Oh my gosh, that's great. I love I love that idea. Yeah. So what Megan, like what about this piece? Like I know you love it so much. Like what about this piece specifically do you love? Oh, well, I just love the wackiness of it. I love how it's over the top, but Oh, I got you. I, I love how it's over the top and everybody plays it straight. And that just makes it that much more fun because everybody who's in it believes this is this is what's happening and, and they take everything as face value and it just adds to, to how wonderful the story comes across. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Cranky went off enough chatting before we bring our author on i want to sing his praises a little bit so christopher j valen is a writer teacher artist and historian living in the los angeles area he received his master's degree with honors in military history and his first book fortune's favorite sir charles and the breaking of the line is the expansion of his master's thesis on his five times grant great five times great grandfather, Rear Admiral Sir Charles Douglas. In addition to writing and inking for independent comic book companies and writing screenplays for production companies, Christopher has had numerous short stories published in anthologies such as Beyond the Stars and The Fans Are Buried Tales. His screenplays, teleplays, and stories have won multiple awards and contests. As C.J. Vallon, he is co-author of the popular Raptors young adult superhero story. And his uh, first book in his upcoming sci-fi space opera trilogy, Gravity City, written with Artie Cabrera, releases this fall and is currently available on Amazon for pre-order. Oh my gosh, Chris does it all. Oh my gosh. That's insane. I know, right? So let's bring Chris on and say hello. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi, welcome Thanks to the show. Thank you. That was great. You guys all did great. I loved it. Oh, oh good. Oh, I'm so I'm so that's was, that makes the night when the author yeah, says that it was they loved very it. exciting to hear it come to life. 
I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad you're not going to throw something at us, Christopher. <laughs> well, yeah, I, especially since you just be throwing it at the screen. And it oh, like... yeah, that'd be terrible for your screen. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, think it, was, it would be a hard one to read. I mean, there's a lot of voices and a lot of accents and all kinds of stuff going on. Impressions. Uh, what yeah, made you write great this? Job. What made you write um, this? This is crazy. <clears throat> Uh, my friend Artie Cabrera, who I, I just recently finished writing a trilogy of books with, yeah. back before I really knew him, he was putting together uh, uh, an anthology, a short story anthology called B-Movie. Oh, was, yes, all the, yes. All the stories were B-Movies. Oh, amazing. And he asked me if I had any ideas, and I had a bunch of ideas. I had ideas <laughs> of space aliens coming and invading Earth like Mars attacks type of stuff. I oh, had. I love, mm -hmm. I love Mars. Yeah. Attacks. Yeah. And the, but when I was a kid, I loved like King Kong versus Godzilla and the giant robots. Mm -hmm. And I loved all that stuff. And I just had all these ideas and I just listed them all. And then I just somehow decided to just combine them all into one, <laughs> one big <laughs> mess along with my love of history and being a historian. Um, and uh, did a bunch of research because I wanted to set it in the 1950s. Because to me, when I think of B movies, I don't know, I just think of that, you know, period of time. And uh, and I just did a bunch of research and came up with, you know, they, they usually have the president in those types of movies, like the alien <laughs> invasion movies, you know. Absolutely. And and I was gonna have it be Eisenhower because he was president through most of the 50s. But then I no. read that Nixon had taken over for Eisenhower when he had a heart attack, and I thought. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna have Nixon do it. He's much more interesting, and it would be much funnier to have it be him. It must be so freeing too to like write something like this, right? Oh yeah, just not care. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not care really like about the realism or you know, I it's and, and you know what Megan was saying about everyone taking it seriously. It reminds me of the movies where like like an Ed Wood movie or something where he thinks he's producing something serious and great and it, everyone else just sees it as a as a ridiculous you know plan nine concept. from outer space guy right exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. that was my idea for that i like the i when i first read this i i felt like it was written by someone who knew their history and that's one of the things that i really like about this story is that it's it's written with that authenticity of like i feel like I'm in, I'm in history in this alternative alternative history that's happening, but with it's being written by someone who knows the the history that we know, and it's grounded in those facts, and that makes it even that much more enjoyable for me because it's it's taking these true events and it's elevating it into this bananas world, and I, I just love that juxtaposition. Well, thanks. I I, uh, I'm glad it shows because <laughs> I did a lot, like I said, I did a lot of research and, and it, the funny thing is so many things were falling into place. Like Nixon was obsessed with UFOs. Like uh, there's a oh story about, about him taking Jackie Gleason to supposedly to look at some al dead alien body or something. It's this crazy story I oh found online and, and I even worked Jackie Gleason in, you know, the, the line about the bruiser hitting uh -huh. his wife and, you know, to the moon, Alice, you know, that was, uh, that was like working that in along with the fifties TV and uh, but everything um, about the dates and the Russians dropping an atomic bomb the day before and all that stuff was real. All that is grounded. Watergate, the Watergate before they built the Watergate hotel where the, the Nixon 
scandal started uh it was a restaurant it was a it was a restaurant and uh it just i this stuff was like just falling into place when i was writing it uh, it's, oh it's so funny you say that christopher like i've talked to other writers that say the same thing right like there's something about the subconscious and coincidences mm -hmm. that happen at the same time it's it's magical yep yep uh, i think that's just a sign that that's where you're supposed to go creatively <laughs> when these doors start opening and coincidences start popping and you're like oh i can add this and i can add that it's like it's like low-hanging fruit you know you yep. just, you i agree just it and <laughs> throw it into the story so a, a lot of writers they have issues with like doing research uh aka me like fear <laughs> of research like what advice would you have for a writer that has issues with research um I would say, you know, just go down those rabbit holes. Don't be afraid uh, to to just follow a thread where it goes because it may lead to something you don't expect. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you never know where the least little thing could could lead you. Like like with this whole thing with I did with, with Nixon, just I wasn't even going to use him at first, and that became mm -hmm. the whole big thing of the story. You know, um, yeah. doing research little by little, finding out more and more, and you know. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned earlier about tabs, and you know, when, before we started the show, but like all the tabs you have open, I always oh, yeah. have a million tabs open. Yeah, and, and I'm putting, I'll, I'll, when I'm reading, so I'll, I'll, uh, I don't, I don't want to get too off track uh, when I'm when I'm doing research. So I'll like, I'll, I'll see a link and I'll right click on the link and open a new tab so that I know to go to that next, and then, but I'll stick with the one I'm, I'm in right oh, there. Oh, I love that. That's a great that. idea. Yeah. Yeah, That's so really I'm not just idea. jumping around too much and then kind of keep it orderly. And uh, also I keep uh, like a Google Doc with just uh, notes, all the copy and paste stuff into it. I used to use Word, but now it's easier to use Google Docs. And I just, uh, I, I find something and uh, I think I can use later and I'll just copy and, and paste it in there so that I can just have one document with all those notes rather than have to keep going back. And then I can close that tab and I don't have to worry about going yeah, back. Yeah, I love that. I'm definitely going to use that for myself. Yeah. Chris, have you ever thought of doing um, a comic book for this story? Like, I have, and I... I actually entered it into a contest that where they turn them into graphic novels that I didn't I didn't win so they didn't do it. But oh. I have don't thought they about understand? hiring an <laughs> Don't they <laughs> understand? Mermaids. Of course. Mermaids. I don't know what's wrong uh, with them. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I definitely would like to turn it into a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I think I can I can see it. So it's so visual, mm -hmm. especially the the fight scene with all the tentacles flying and like the mermaid blood guts and all of that like i i really feel like an illustrator would have a would have a lot of fun um yeah. turning that turning that into into a graphic novel or a, or a comic mm -hmm. book i think it would yeah. be a wonderful show on like cartoon network <laughs> oh yeah i agree i agree let's get them let's get them let's on do board. it yeah, yeah yeah let's we could do an anthology of uh -huh. bonkers stories yeah. that are all short stories but done as graphic novels and animation have you done any yeah. other bonkers stories um or is this your first one i don't i don't think i've I, i've written some some pretty pretty bonkers stories and this is the craziest <laughs> one i've ever written I, I did some alternate history ones um 
that were a little bit out there. Um, like where Custer wins the battle of the little big horn because he has like a, an Iron Man steampunk, Iron Man kind of suit, uh, guy fighting alongside him. And then he becomes president because he's, because he won the battle instead of losing it. And yeah, I, that was kind of crazy. Wow. I, wrote, I wrote a few different stories in that <laughs> alternate history. I love that. Nothing like this. I don't think I've ever done yeah. before. I, I, I worked on a, with Artie again, um, the gravity city, um, is also a magazine, a digital magazine that we created that has some really funny stories in it, I guess. Um, um, that are shorter. Like, um, I did like a band, a fake band interview with some alien, <laughs> alien band members and some stuff like that. So that was, that was pretty out there. Oh, I, I love that kind of stuff. Like, interview with alien band members and you know like recipes for like you know some sort of like alien meat stew or you there know was, just there like, was that there was a recipes uh there was fake letters to the editor yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we had all kinds of alien funny stuff in there yeah that's that's really cool i i i find it very i find it very freeing to go into that place like i like because my my brain's pretty analytical and so to be able to go into this sort of like unruly place where anything can happen and even things like historical events aren't aren't grounded in reality is very freeing for me mm -hmm. and and i think that's one of the reasons why i gravitate so so quickly to to stories like yours it's just it's like a breath of fresh air yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, I think our society is too highbrow, like where story has to like be so prosy and, and you know, lyrical. And so uh -huh. like I feel like people who are brave and willing to show a different side of writing, like like praise people like you, Christopher. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it matters, right? Like yeah. it, it really matters. Like uh I don't know. I don't think bonkers or comedy or horror, like things that are a little outside of the norm, they don't get enough credit. Mm -mm. I don't, I agree. They don't. Yeah. I mean, people need to be entertained. They need to Absolutely. escape. They need to escape. Them, yes. Feel free. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeremy and I were just talking about this the other day about bringing literature back to the, like to the masses, you know, and, 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 the greats Joe Shakespeare wrote for the masses and Dickens mm -hmm. wrote for the masses and and sometimes I feel like there's a stigma against um pulpy fiction because it is mm -hmm. written for a mass market and the the highbrow literature is is more for the elite and not that there's not a place for that for that mm -hmm. type of literature but I I try to encourage people who may be turned off by quote unquote literature short stories mm -hmm. because they feel like it's too elite for them to like, you know, check out this story, read about gorilla bots, you know, read, mm -hmm. read about the house plant, like read about these things yeah. that, that help make or subject matters that help people find literature more accessible and be because they legitimately don't like literature, right? right. Like they don't yeah. like the type of literature that they associate with it. <clears throat> so it's like lame word, but I want to use it. Baller, Christopher, that you're like, <laughs> this is also literature. Yeah. Come with me. I'll show you a different way. And then you open up the world and there's like killer mermaids. Yep. Yeah. And, they, and they learn some history without knowing it. 
Yeah, you're exactly. into it. We got a history lesson to boot. You're doing some Mary Poppins stuff, giving them a spoonful of medicine. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. oh, I love that. Well, Chris, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here tonight and to to let uh, us have this interview and this time with you. We really appreciate it and appreciate you letting us share your story. Thank you so much. I just had such a great time and and thank you to John and Georgia. I didn't get to talk to him when I was backstage. So thank you so much. I really, I'm really excited and happy about this. Oh, great. Well, we we appreciate it, Chris. All right. Thanks, Christopher. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming back on the show and being the special guest for tonight. It's always lovely to have you on the show and to uh, interview with you. Well, thank you for having me. You're welcome. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. All right. So that concludes another fantastic episode of Nobody Reads Short Stories. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com. Watch all of our videos on YouTube. Please like and subscribe, as well as download. You can download our audio podcast from Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Apple Podcasts, basically anywhere you listen to your audio podcast, you can find us. So thank you so much, and we will see you guys soon. No one reads short stories anymore I really don't know what they're written for Go write a short story and throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories No one reads short stories in